Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for October 26th, 2020. Hello out there. Um, as always, thank you for checking out the podcast, and I hope you're all doing well, as well as possible, under the circumstances, whatever circumstances may be, uh, you may be facing at this time. Uh, <laughs> as ever, uh, if you li- listen to this interview, you like this interview, and you want more interviews like this, more information about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs, please check out Foreign Exchange at substack fx.substack.com sign up for the free email list you get a couple of newsletters every week you get any of these uh, uh, podcasts where I'm interviewing various folks uh, about uh, what's happening in the world Uh, and uh, if you like that you can uh, subscribe and get even more content Um, today I'm very pleased to be joined by Stephen Wertheim. Stephen is uh, the Deputy Director of Research and Policy at the Quincy Institute uh, and a research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. He's got a new book out, uh, coming out tomorrow, I believe, I'll ask him about that, uh, called Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, uh, that aims to offer a little bit different interpretation of U.S. history and how the United States came to uh, dominate the world and and choose to dominate the world. It's not, um, uh, well, we'll get into this, but there's certainly a dominant strand of discourse in Washington that kind of talks about uh, empire being thrust upon the United States and uh, the U.S. is a reluctant hegemon, and Stephen's uh, argument uh, undercuts that. (laughs) quite a bit. Uh, So we'll get into that um, and, um, you know, talk a little bit about where things turn, because I think uh, there is a point, uh, you know, in Stephen's telling, there is a point where uh, the United States consciously made a decision to go from a a country that was not interested in really playing in high-level geopolitics so much, uh, at least not in the way that, say, European countries did it, uh, to a country that was very interested and, in fact, uh, at the highest levels kind of decided it was essential for the United States to play that role. Uh, so we will get into that and uh, try to talk some of the, through some of the context of that decision. Uh, but really, you should buy the book. Um, as I said, I think it's available tomorrow. I'll post uh, a link, at least one, uh, to places where you can uh, buy it, hopefully more than that, uh, if I can find them. Uh, so check that out in the show description. Uh, and with that, I'm going to get Stephen uh, on the line here, and we'll start the interview. Okay, I am being joined by Stephen Wertheim, Deputy Director of Research and Policy at the Quincy Institute, a research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University, with a new book coming out tomorrow. We've, we've ascertained it's definitely coming out tomorrow, uh, called Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Stephen, uh, welcome back to the show. This is the second time you've done it, uh, and thank you for, for being here. Thank you very much. Great to be back. Uh, congratulations on the book. Oh, thank uh, you. Is, is this your uh, dissertation published in, in published form now? Uh, yes. Don't tell anyone. Oh. But, <laughs> you know, that can be our little secret. Okay, yes. All right, the heavily right. revised, updated, heavily, improved well, dissertation. Of course. But that's got to be, I mean, that's got to be a, a relief. A, this has been with you for a long time now, and it's finally uh, finally out there, right? Yes, the, the albatross has been removed, and now I'm <laughs> exposed to the world. That's how I feel. Nice. Paradoxical. Nice. Nice. Uh, so, uh, obviously, uh, I wanted to, to have you on to talk about the book. I think it's, um, uh, I will confess to not having read the, the whole thing, I've read a bunch of it good Um, listen as long as people buy it they don't have to read it that's fine i'm (laughs) i'm for that there you go just buy it stick it on the shelf it's fine everybody's good uh nobody's gonna check Um, but i think uh i think it's a, a a great uh book for people who want to understand 
how we got to where we are uh, in the world, literally how the U.S. got to where it is uh, in the world. Um, talk about, let's start sort of with the, the headline uh, kind of idea in the book. Um, there are two, it seems to me, kind of dominant, uh, well, one is really dominant, the other maybe less so, uh, strains of thinking about how the United States came to be a world empire. And the one that is truly dominant in, in Washington seems to be this notion that the United States is kind of reluctantly assumed the mantle of global leadership. We never wanted it, but uh, we just, it, there was no choice. We had to do it for the, the good of all mankind. Uh, and the other one, um, less dominant, but, but I think, you know, especially kind of maybe on the left um, purvey, that pervades is the idea that um, the United States has always been trying to dominate the world, that there's, or nearly always been trying to dominate the world, that there's always been this kind of strain of thinking in Washington that, that wanted to put the United States in this, in the kind of position that it occupies in the world now. Your argument is uh, that neither of these is exactly correct and that there was a, there's a point th that we can actually identify and say, this is where the, do, the the sort of overarching view in Washington changed uh, to you know uh, to become uh, the U.S. has to has to play this kind of role in the world stage. Talk about what that point was and and uh, kind of how we got to there. Yeah, it took me a while to figure this out that there was a decision for dominance and it happened at a particular moment. And you put very well the schools of thought that, in my view, have obstructed or deflected from uh, the question of when it was that American officials and intellectuals made a conscious decision to install the United States as the preeminent military power responsible for enforcing world order on a global scale. Uh, so I date that decision to a mere 18 months early in World War II, before the attack on Pearl Harbor brought the United States formally into the war. So it's 18 months after the fall of France to Nazi Germany in the middle of 1940 and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was the fall of France that actually set about uh, in my view, a more profound rethinking of the nature of international society and America's place in it than Pearl Harbor did. Pearl Harbor settled the question politically, but the real rethinking, in my view, happens in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Sorry, in the wake of the fall of France. See, I, I mess, messed it up myself. Precisely what I'm trying telling readers not to do. Don't confuse these two events. <laughs> Fall of France really matters. And it, it matters in particular because it raises the specter, the very plausible specter for a period of time, that the Axis powers could dominate Europe and potentially Asia, and that Adolf Hitler in particular could hold the reins of world leadership, could be the dominant actor in the world for the foreseeable future. That causes American, all Americans to rethink, well, how do we respond to the situation? For sure. But it causes most of the foreign policy elite concentrated in the, the northeast coast of the United States uh, to figure that if this can happen, this is actually so bad for America and the world, not only in and of itself. So not only should the United States get involved in the war and ensure that the Axis are defeated, but it should also take up a preeminent role after the war, essentially for all time, to make sure that nothing like this can ever happen again. One of the things you talk about in the the book in terms of trying to 
understand the way that people talk about foreign policy in Washington these days uh, is the idea of um, reverse engineering the vocabulary, uh, as you put it, which I think is uh, very smart. And, and it helps kind of trace the development of U.S. foreign policy to look at the terms that we use and how their meanings have changed over time. Two big ones that you talk about in the book are the changing definitions uh, of internationalism and of isolationism. Um, I wonder if you could walk us through, and they're, they're really kind of obviously juxtaposed to one another, so they're very closely related. Um, I wonder if you could take us through how those terms have been used and um, abused, maybe, <laughs> as we get into, uh, you know, the, the contemporary period uh, by kind of uh, the people who are thinking about and arguing about debating about foreign policy. I started out as a historian looking at uh, World War I, looking at debates over uh, the, what was called the peace settlement. How should the United States participate in forging a long-term peace after the Great War. And what I found was two related discoveries. First of all, there was a more robust debate among self-described internationalists than the scholarship had appreciated. There was an idea, uh, we know about Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, but there was also a competing idea centered more than Wilson's around international law and enforcing settlement of disputes in a new international court. And that's what I wrote about. So there was this competition, this vibrant competition of ideas within internationalism. What there wasn't was isolationism or even people at the time accusing another side of being isolationist. I think the term isolationist appears in the New York Times in the year 1919 once. So that wasn't even part of the conceptual horizons, really, of American foreign policy. So then I started to look back and try to understand how did we come to speak as a country in terms of this dichotomy between internationalism or isolationism? What we're told today, what you know, I've been told throughout my lifetime is, you know, you're either an internationalist or an isolationist fundamentally, and that this dichotomy captures something about how the United States uh, conducted itself in the world over time, and eventually, you know, isolationism lost and internationalism triumphed. It's just completely ahistorical um, to, to have that narrative about the United States and the world. So it turns out that um, the, the term internationalism came into widespread usage in the late 19th century. It was first and foremost used by um, Quakers and pacifists. Uh, and it seemed kind of naive, therefore. And as it migrated into more mainstream circles by the turn of the 20th century, um, there was a kind of consensus around this much, as Theodore Roosevelt, no pacifist he, uh, put it, the United States should have a sound nationalism and a sound internationalism. So forget isolationism. Isol the term isolationism didn't exist yet. It was not in widespread usage. And for most Americans, the question was, how do you balance nationalism and internationalism. Both are good things. How do you bring them into the right relationship? Uh, nobody feared isolationism. Nobody thought that some other group of Americans advocated isolationism. So it's not until the 1930s that the ism, isolationism, comes into widespread usage. And it does so rather gradually, uh, but increasingly once World War II breaks out. Uh, and so this uh, formation, I think, is really significant. Um, it allows, and I don't think its significance lies in describing the set of people that it named, almost to a man and woman 
The people accused of being isolationists said that they were no such thing. Most of them favored uh, trade with as many nations as possible, uh, even at the height of the Neutrality Acts designed to keep the United States out of World War II uh, based on uh, perceived lessons of World War I. Uh, you know, they they just restricted some forms of uh, financial and economic uh, relations with powers that were at war. There was never an attempt, and nor was there any real political support to, you know, keep the United States completely hunkered down without relationship to the outside world. So the term isolationism is significant, I think, not because it describes any group of Americans or any even potentially powerful position within the United States, but for what it does to the people who then call themselves internationalists as opposed to isolationists. They, as they come to the view that the United States should be the supreme military power on earth, they find it very appealing to position their view against this term isolationism, because against isolationism, they can look like they're true to the old project of transcending power politics while calling for the United States to dominate power politics at the same time. It is this this sort of notion of internationalism, sort of pre-World War One kind of 19th century uh, that you write about it as being sort of um, different in a sense because it is a sort of um, explicit kind of call to not participate in European style balance of power politics, um, but instead to focus on things like commerce and kind of the exchange of ideas, basically, um, which still leads, though, and I wanted to to sort of talk about the the 19th century uh, kind of pre empire period because there's still uh some empire building of a sense happening i think in in the western hemisphere um it's not you know the united states is not kind of assuming a role as the global hegemon but it does assume a role as kind of uh, the protector the paternal protector of uh latin america to I think some, you know, not not dissimilar, let's say, um, results. And I wonder, you know, what is the um, difference as you see it, uh, you know, for people who would look at this thesis and say, well, what about, you know, U.S. intervention in, uh, in Latin America during all this time? What's the, the difference in terms of the objectives and mindset behind uh, that? type of uh, kind of international intervention, let's say, or, you know, foreign policy uh, and what emerges after World War II. You're absolutely right. It's not for nothing that uh, a lot of scholars, particularly on the left, um, have narrated U.S. history pretty much from the founding as a story of uh, expansion and even imperialism. Uh, not only did the United States uh, perform conquest across North America, uh, which was a dramatic project. Uh, it also clearly became a colonial power, a great power and a colonial power after 1898, when it took uh, Puerto Rico and the Philippines and held them as colonies. Puerto Rico uh, to this day doesn't have statehood and the Philippines, the United States ruled for 48 years. I dare say that experience deserves a greater, uh, greater attention in uh, American history than it's received, though I invite listeners to check out Daniel Imrevar's excellent book, How to Hide an Empire. So I think all that is indisputably correct. And yet, for all this time, American leaders had affirmed again and again the golden rule of George Washington as he articulated it in his farewell address, that the United States should not make permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world, 
What he meant especially was Europe. And most of them subscribed to a view that the, the new world was different fundamentally from the old world. So the United States should avoid power politics or seek to transcend it through peaceful means in the old world centered in Europe. But in the new world, that was the domain for the United States to lead, to be the supreme power. And in a way, this is what the non-interventionists uh, of 1940 and 41 inherit. So the position that is now called, uh, you know, the clearest example of isolationism in America's history, the America first position of 1940 and 41, that position was first and foremost, that the United States should defend the entire Western hemisphere by force. Ask Central Americans, ask South Americans, whether that's isolationism by the United States. It just makes no sense. And of course, the group that triumphed uh, wanted to breach the new world restriction on U.S. military entanglements and extend U.S. military uh, presence to the entire world. So I think it's important to, to note that the pre-1940 internationalism was definitely not pacifism, although pacifists were the kind of original coiners of the term internationalism, and it always retained a certain uh, pacifist connotation, uh, which proved quite useful for those who wanted to deploy it to different ends. Uh, so, you know, we have to be really careful when we look back for inspiration, potentially, to uh, the United States of the pre-1940 era. Uh, but, you know, at, on the other hand, if you look at the U.S. record in the 20s and 30s, um, there was a deeper recognition coming out of World War I based on that experience of warfare in Europe that the United States really had no vital interests in Europe and that it should seek to stay out. And that started to extend in the 1920s into quite mainstream criticism of U.S. intervention in Nicaragua and other places, even within the Western Hemisphere, helping to produce the good neighbor policy uh, by the end of the uh, Hoover administration and the beginning of uh, FDR's administration. And it's for this reason that uh, starting uh, out in World War II, when the war broke out and the post-war planners that my book focuses on sat down to think about the shape of things to come, they couldn't imagine that the United States would emerge from the war making political and military commitments in Europe. They had a lot of fanciful possibilities that they entertained, but for the so-called phony war for that period of eight months from September 1939 to April 1940, uh, none of them foresaw the United States uh, in practical terms becoming the post-war hegemon, and none of them even thought it made sense. So I, uh, this is the, you know, the next area I wanted to talk about. There, there is this period um sort of at the beginning of world war ii and then you know the as you say the fall of france becomes this uh inflection point where you know it, it starts to to become clear uh at least to people in in you know the u.s government uh or you know kind of u.s foreign policy thinkers uh that the united states has to step into the 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 gap, I guess, or the breach and kind of uh, become a, a, a major player. Um, I, can you take us through kind of the um, the early thinking, kind of maybe pre-fall of France, um, thinking about, because there were people doing this, thinking about what uh, a post-war order could look like um, not one dominated by the United States, but there were, you know, some other ideas kind of uh, percolating. And then, you know, obviously the uh, the shift happens uh, after the, the fall of France and, uh, you know, that kind of shakes people up, it, it seems. 
Yeah, prior to the fall of France, there were a lot of different possibilities for how things could happen, but all of them, at, at least among you know influential people who were doing post-war planning, whether in the State Department or the Council on Foreign Relations and places like that, all of them broadly fit within the old kind of 19th century internationalist formula. So just before the Nazis invaded France, the post-war planners who had gathered in the Council on Foreign Relations uh, sent a memo to the State Department. What they thought was important to do at that point was to catalog proposals for disarmament, for universal disarmament throughout history, going back to the ancient Greeks who had prohibited poisoning wells and going up to Winston Churchill in 1913, who had proposed a one-year holiday on naval building. So this is the same group of people, the very same group with Alan Dulles, former, uh, sorry, future CIA director, and uh, Hanson Baldwin, a New York Times military analyst. These are the same exact people who will be a year later plotting, uh, you know, U.S. military bases around the world in tandem with the British Empire to police the post-war world. So we have to enter this extremely different universe of thought um, prior to the fall of France. Now, some feared, uh, and this includes some people in the State Department, that the uh, British and the French would end up winning the war and they might establish a post-war trading bloc that could exclude the United States. Um, nobody but was pro-Axis, pro-German, but what they largely assumed was that just as World War I had shown, uh, the defense would dominate in the war. There was probably going to be a stalemate. And so uh, what the State Department does is that it sends uh, Under Secretary of State Sumner Wells, FDR's man in the department, to Europe in the spring of 1940, and he goes around to the capital trying to find some way to mediate a settlement in Europe, you know, make the status quo to some degree stick, and see if, you know, some schemes for disarmament might be possible. When we talk about the um, the organizations uh, or the the groups that were doing this post war planning, and I, I'm you know I going you know from prior to the fall of France and after, um, you know you've you've mentioned the State Department, you've mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations. Who were these folks? Uh, and I don't necessarily mean at the individual level, but but what was the role of um, you know, sort of the key organizations uh, at this point in kind of steering the discourse. Um, and in particular, I'm sort of interested in um, how uh, the United States, how thinkers in the United States came to bring together uh, capitalist interests and the idea of military primacy. Because as you write in the book, uh, these were not connected uh, for a, for quite a, a long time in in uh, sort of the foreign policy discourse in the U.S. and it was only uh, in this period and after that they kind of came together uh, into the uh, hydra that they are today. Um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about that process and uh, what brought that? to bear, I guess, or what brought that to fruition? That's a great question, because I think one of the reasons why the story I tell hadn't been told previously is that a lot of uh, diplomatic historians and political scientists focus on the upper echelons of decision making uh, in foreign policy. So what does FDR think and do? What are his top advisors think and do? But the fact is that uh, Prior to Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government is still quite small, especially when it came to foreign policy, and there was no real capacity to do long-range thinking and planning uh, within the State Department. And the question of how to deal with the ongoing war crisis absorbed people at the top levels. And let's just leave aside the fact that 
reading the tea leaves of FDR's mind is, is just always a fraught task. So I was more interested in looking beyond uh, that level, you know, just below to the people who were most engaged, most centrally involved in doing post-war thinking and planning. And once I started to look, um, it was an enormous terrain. Over the last few decades, a kind of American foreign policy establishment had been built up with a lot of funding from foundations like uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, this had been an effort that came out of World War One, although there were a couple groups that formed the Carnegie Endowment included before World War One. But by that point, there was a recognition that the United States was a major power, uh, that uh, preventing a, a, another great power war was a very important task, and that economic reconstruction would be important. So your capitalist interests are expressing themselves, I think, broadly in this expert group. Um, but all this time prior to the fall of France, there's still not a view that America's economic supremacy needs to imply military dominance. In fact, you know, it could lead you to the opposite conclusion, and it led people at the time to the opposite conclusion. Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of the Carnegie Endowment, uh, famously pointed to the international mind and said, what we really need, what will truly safeguard uh, peace and, and world order is public opinion, the public opinion of the world expressing itself. Of course, public opinion would be interpreted by enlightened men, mostly white enlightened men like himself. But nevertheless, this was you know, what uh, an institution like that believed it was doing for quite some time, promoting greater understanding among nations. Um, and so, you know, while I think the, the, these kind of semi-official uh, elite spaces turn out to be quite important to the story, I, I don't think there was a conspiracy. In fact, I kind of admire the way uh, some of these elites uh, got together and tried to um, adjust America's role in the world to changing circumstances. I'm critical of the product of that. But as I look around today in the midst of a pandemic, uh, which is producing 9-11 scale death of the American people every three days, I think we'd be better off if we had a set of elites who were, who were more creative. And one reason perhaps that we don't today is that uh, back in the 20s, 30s, and early 40s, the scale of the state, as I mentioned, was pretty small. And, and that opened this room for, you know, an elitist civil society, but nevertheless, civil society to, to have a significant role. In a sense, what they end up conceiving after the fall of France is a self-liquidating project. Uh, it will call for the U United States to play uh, uh, the largest military role in the world. Uh, that will cause the United States to build up uh, its bureaucracy and its capacity to do long-range planning. And as a result, it makes um, people outside of the state uh, less independent, gives them less room uh, for maneuver, and of course creates the military-industrial complex that we see today. The, your argument in the book that, that uh, it was the fall of France that kind of changed minds basically changed the mindset uh, around U.S. foreign policy dovetails actually with something that uh, Daniel Vessner wrote uh, a few weeks ago for, for foreign exchanges. Uh, and I, I wanted to kind of talk to you about, you know, where these things align. I mean, Daniel wrote about the sort of dependence of, uh, that that the American Empire has for enemies, the the need for an existential threat to kind of justify um, the you know, its existence, basically. Uh, and the first of those, obviously, was was Adolf Hitler, and and that 
you know, as you write in the book, kind of arises suddenly, in a sense, uh, from the fall of France and this, um, you know, kind of revelation that, hey, you know, this this guy may really take over uh, the world. Um, and, you know, uh, Daniel wrote about Carl Schmitt and his uh, concept of the political and his argument that you can basically distill politics down to uh, good guys and bad guys or friends and enemies. Um, he doesn't say good guys and bad guys, but, but you know, you tend to identify your friends as the good guys and uh, your enemies as the bad guys. Uh, and, and his argument is there was sort of a, a point there where uh, basically all geopolitics became this Manichaean struggle between friend, our friends and our enemies or the good guys and the bad guys. Um, and that's rooted in this experience of Hitler's rise, the fall of France, and, and how formative that was, I think, and, you know, uh, and here, you know, we're getting back to, to your thesis, um, how formative that is in the development of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, I I guess I'm asking you to do some some amateur psychology here, but I and if if it's not something we can really get at, then please tell me. But I wonder um, how much of this shift uh, that you see happening around the fall of France and the the you know middle midpoint of World War II, how much of it is sort of well-intentioned and kind of a genuine sort of, oh, wow, this is, you know, really bad. We have to do something about this, uh, you know, sort of a well-intentioned reaction and, and how much of it is, or maybe becomes later on kind of, we can, this is an opportunity that we can use to, uh, sort of further our, our aims as a, as a, as a country and sort of take advantage of, um, the the situation is there some of that, or is it all kind of you know just a genuine sort of stunned reaction to Hitler and and his successes? So even in the eighteen months of nineteen forty and forty one, um, it, you know, yes, there's a stunned reaction, but. There's also a thoughtful one. The United States was in a luxurious position. No, no, no other country could even ha assemble groups of post-war planners to look ahead like the United States could. It was in an enviable uh, position behind its oceans. And both sides of the debate understood that. So both sides of the debate didn't really fear that the United States was about to be invaded anytime soon or that if it was, it could be successfully invaded. The position that favored intervention in the war, as well as post-war U.S. dominance, objected to you know, Hitler ruling Europe as such because it would be bad for world order, it would be bad for civilization, and I think the defining feature of that badness, it certainly wasn't something like the Holocaust, which, um, sad to say, American elites did not care about at the time very much. That was not a, an actuating uh, motive for them. What, what they cared about was uh, this notion that, you know, totalitarian powers could dominate Europe and Asia, leaving the United States unable to be an exceptional nation that, that drove world history and also restricting um, liberal terms of interaction, uh, commerce, finance, but also international law, a basic kind of sense of the rules of the road internationally. So I just want to emphasize that. It wasn't that they thought that um, there was much of a chance uh, for the United States to be invaded even in the future, as long as the United States had a strong military and defended at least uh, the entire Western Hemisphere. So, but initially, yes, I mean, the, the specter of this totalitarian other was very real. It existed. Uh, and, you know, I don't, even non-interventionists were mostly uh, deeply opposed to, uh, you know, seeing uh, the Axis rule Europe. 
and thought that that was a terrible thing for Europe. Um, over time, I think, it is true that American elites have struggled to see how they could sustain a project of globe-spanning military dominance, given the costs and risks that it entails, if there weren't a large-scale enemy, kind of like what the Axis powers appeared to be in the wake of the fall of France. So coming out of 1945, I think that the decision for dominance had been made and had been widely legitimated in American society. Now Americans were talking about how vital it was to repudiate mythical isolationism in the name of this new anti-isolationist internationalism. But on the other hand, American policymakers sought to uh, cooperate uh, to a degree with the post-war Soviet Union. And in the next two, three to five years, uh, Various pressures, I don't think it's, you know, mainly bad faith or anything like that. So I, I'm going to decline your invitation to, to be an amateur psychologist. But I think it's like <laughs> real incentives that cause them uh, to, um, you know, sometimes inflate the Soviet threat. Dean Acheson famously uh, advises that the way to get uh, Congress behind Cold War initiatives is to scare the hell out of the American people. And you do that by um, by fear mongering about the Soviet Union. Now, it also is true that uh, the Soviet Union uh, expressed, you know, uh, universalist aspirations to remake the world in its communist image and undertook a series of repressive actions in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. So you know, all these things converged to give us the Cold War. But I do think that um, in our own time, one of the reasons why the there seems to be a legitimacy crisis around American military dominance today is that it's now been three full decades since there was a large uh, totalitarian power in the world. The Soviet Union fell collapsed completely in 1991. It's been a long time. And what has the United States done? It has found, I think as Bessner's piece would predict, it has found new enemies, not one big enemy because there simply wasn't one, but a whole lot of smaller enemies that have then been inflated as grave threats to the United States. So the United States has used force far more frequently since 1991 than it did during the Cold War itself. And it used force quite a bit during the Cold War. So I think that's kind of where we stand today. This Manichaean logic does, does survive. I don't think it requires us to question the intentions uh, in large part of the American foreign policymaking class. In, in some sense, it would be easier if it did you know, then you could remove the, the bad people and, and put in better people. I don't think that's what's at stake. It, we have a, a structural commitment to U.S. military dominance. We have a lot of concentrated interests uh, that hover around Washington, D.C., uh, that seek to keep that, that going. And we have a political consensus uh, around U.S. military dominance that casts Anything else but total dominance as isolationism. How were the um, sort of planners, you know, the 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 post-war in the post-war period, or kind of uh, the late war and post-war period? Um, how were these folks able to um, convince the U.S. public that this was the right course of action? And I, I mean, I, I think. Obviously, the specter of of Hitler and the the fall of France and that must that was a a huge shock to uh, everybody and that would have that that certainly helped um, you know S Joseph Stalin uh, as as Bessner wrote in his piece kind of was a convenient 
new hit. I mean, he slotted in very nicely for people who wanted to sort of make the argument that we're still in this kind of Manichaean struggle with another totalitarian power. He slotted in very nicely in that role. Um, but, you know, as you write in the book, this was a, a, a very new idea uh, for U.S. foreign policy. And, and I wonder how, um, you know, what were some of the mechanisms that uh, the establishment used to kind of get the American people on board? And, and you know, there are things like, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the book, the cynical, and I, I view it as cynical anyway, kind of rewriting uh, of World War One. And that failure being recast as isolationism—that uh, was the problem. It was the—it was sort—it's sort of this imposition of guilt on the United States for being isolationist and causing, in some sense, World War II to happen. Uh, but were there other, like, what were, were some of the other things that um, people used to kind of make the case to the public? Well, you might answer uh, that the UN itself was one of the major initiatives. This surprised me when I went into the archives um, that there was not only had there been a moment of decision to make the United States the supreme military power, but there was also a moment of decision that some form of new world organization with universal membership should be created. What I found is that as soon as the United States entered the war, many foreign policy elites were utterly preoccupied with the question of would the American public go along with U.S. dominance after the war? Uh, even as the United States was just entering the war, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was unclear that the Soviet Union would survive the onslaught from the Nazi Germany's post-war planners in the State Department uh, were sitting there in the spring of 1942. They were imagining a world uh, open for post-war U.S. influence, extremely malleable. And they decided that it would be useful to create a new world organization, not because they believed anymore that something like the League of Nations, which had, which had manifestly failed, uh, was the solution to creating order in the world, uh, but instead because they believed that the United States and its military force had to create order and a world organization with universal membership could help legitimate that project among the American public. They had noticed that in 1941, when uh, FDR and Churchill announced the Atlantic Charter off the coast of Newfoundland uh, and didn't call for a new international organization, FDR had struck that proposal down uh, after Churchill suggested including it. They noticed that the Atlantic Charter, in the words of post-war planners in the Council on Foreign Relations, had had fallen like a dead duck in Congress and the public. It had even drawn accusations from no less a cold future cold warrior than John Foster Dulles of being a recipe for Anglo-Saxon military and economic hegemony. So what they quickly perceived and greatly worried about was that there were intellectual resources deeply rooted in the United States that opposed U.S. participation in power politics. They were calling that isolationism, but the grain of truth in that charge was what we talked about before, this uh, aversion to military entanglements in the old world. And that's precisely what these planners thought needed to be overcome. And so they launch a campaign uh, from 1942, completed by the end of the war in 1945, that's nominally about getting the United States to join the United Nations uh, as it had failed to join the post-war League of Nations after World War I. But actually that campaign, I argue, was, was conceived as a campaign of legitimation. It was about creating this new sense of self for the United States in the world, 
and convincing the public that um, they had to cast off so-called isolationism in favor of internationalism, which now seemed to imply first and foremost uh, U.S. military participation, indeed dominance, in the post-war world. And so historians uh, write back onto the past, as you mentioned, these narratives, uh, you know, some of them going back to the founding uh, and, and seeing a, a battle between internationalism and isolationism at the time, some of them going back to World War I and the lived experience of uh, most people at the time, and uh, not just berating the so-called isolationists for not wanting the U.S. to join the League of Nations, but also criticizing some of the internationalists at the time, Woodrow Wilson and Republicans in the Senate, for being too perfectionistic, for having basically too many different ideas that conflicted with one another. They suggested that you know the internationalists should have banded together, put aside their differences in order to defeat the larger enemy, isolationism. So this new narrative and conceptualization of America's role in the world uh, was, uh, I think, firmly in place by the time uh, the United States joined the UN with very little, with only two votes against it in the US Senate and won the war uh, in Europe and Asia. Having said that, what I don't make claims about in the book is what the American public actually believed. Um, it's perfectly plausible to me that the public was more than willing to go along with these plans, uh, at least you know through 1945, um, without this concerted campaign of legitimation. Um, it's very hard to to actually you know trace through archives what the mass public actually believed. So what what I think is interesting and revelatory is what the elites tell themselves they're doing, what they tell themselves their concerns are, uh, and what they attempt to do. So that's the scope of the kind of claim that I'm making. We already talked about, we already kind of went through uh, the Cold War and, and you know, sort of the, the way that this post-war view of America and the world kind of permeated through that period. And, and you started to get into uh, where things are now and have been since the fall of the Soviet Union and the, the loss of uh, the second existential enemy. Um, and we, you know, we came through uh, or we've gone through the war on terror, which I mean, we went through sort of the 1990s kind of America will hop around the world doing bringing peace and justice and light to everyone uh, with smart bombs. Uh, and then we, we entered the war on terror period. Matt Dust just wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, uh, which is sh almost shocking to be given Foreign Affairs role as kind of the <laughs> magazine of the foreign policy establishment. But, uh, you know, wrote, just wrote a piece that said we have to get over the war on terror if we're going to, uh, you know, adopt a, a, a more rational foreign policy moving forward. Forward. Uh, the new, I mean, the, the war on terror has been unsatisfying because you, you can only kind of make Al Qaeda seem like an existential threat for so long before people start to realize that that's absurd. Um, and so now sort of we're in this new phase and the new thing is to, to pump China up uh, as an existential threat and try to get that, that feeling of a, a great power competition back. Um, I, I wonder as we kind of to wrap up I guess, to close out, uh, as you look at the discourse that emerged from World War II and compare it to uh, where the, the consensus is now, do you find uh, that it, it, the con establishment consensus is still uh, as safely entrenched as it, it may have been a, a few decades ago at the height of the Cold War, perhaps? Um, and do you find, do you think there are any kind of lessons for people who want to challenge the consensus and, and change U.S. foreign policy? Is there anything that can be learned from the experience of um, the, the World War II and, and immediate post-war period and from the, the people who were skeptical then of 
these arguments about primacy? Is there anything we can take uh, from that period and apply today? All right. So just a couple small questions you've asked me. <laughs> just to, you know, just to take us out of the out of here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear the music already playing. Okay. <laughs> yes. So so I do think that um, things are changing today. Uh, this is not what situation we we face and that we faced for maybe the past five years um, suggests to me that the kind of tectonic plates of um, thinking about America's role in the world are shifting uh, and they're shifting in a way, you know, I haven't seen in my waking lifetime, which I guess um, extends to the early 1990s. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. And listeners can probably think of many of them. What I think my book suggests is a paradox about America's continued commitment to military dominance after the collapse of the Soviet Union. On the one hand, it makes sense that the American foreign policy class continued to think that U.S. global dominance was essential. Um, After all, U.S. global dominance was not just about defeating a particular enemy, uh, even the Axis. At the time, uh, U.S. foreign policymakers looked ahead and figured that the demonstration that the Nazis had put forward showed that there was could be no decent world order without an armed a superior armed enforcer. And as the British were getting weaker, and as the United States rearmed, it was the United States that had to play that role. So yes, after uh, the total victory in World War II and eventually a total victory uh, in the Cold War, the United States kept up this project that. Uh, you know, had already been conceived as something that should go on something like forever. But, but the whole rationale for U.S. global dominance was that, you know, maybe not right now, but at some point in the future, a totalitarian conqueror would emerge and could therefore hold the reins of world leadership. And that was unacceptable. It would leave the United States, quote unquote, isolated. And so that was the danger. And three decades after the Soviet Union, I think many Americans, young and old, are looking around and saying, is that really the danger? And how do we weigh that potential danger against the upfront costs in lives, communities, expenditure that we've seen from endless war making uh, for for a number of decades. So I think that's the kind of structural backdrop to the events we've seen as the war on terror uh, has uh, proved to be unwinnable and unendable uh, that we see kind of creeping up into our national conversation in these in these weird ways <laughs> you know like presidential primaries seems to be the time when the country checks in about oh yeah okay we're doing a lot of things in the world how do we feel about this and since Barack Obama defeated Hillary Clinton in 2008 um, the the feedback from the American public seems to be uh, that the candidates who are more anti-war get rewarded. When it comes to lessons to be learned, I write this book as a historian and people can take different lessons from it. And putting on my historian hat, I have to be okay with that. (laughs) But I also have my views about where we need to go now. Uh, And I take a number of lessons um, from the history. First of all, we should take the lesson that United States is not just um, inherently bent on domination because of its 
you know, ideology or even because of capitalist interests. All these elements were in place prior to uh, World War II, you know, which is still most of America's history. And for all this time, um, the United States did not uh, try to dominate the world militarily on a global scale. And its leaders routinely uh, at least paid lip service to the idea that uh, its role was very much not that, that it should not have military entanglements, at least in, in the old world of Europe and Asia. So the first lesson, I think, is that despite some of the evidence we may see from our own uh, experience in the last three decades, things are changeable, uh, not easily changed. And maybe that's part of the second lesson. Uh, you know, in the original moment uh, when U.S. global dominance was forged, uh, it was forged. You know, the, the reason had to be pretty good because there were actually entrenched interests uh, mitigating against the United States assuming that role, including many uh, members of the business world uh, who thought that uh, you know military. Socialism was a bad thing, and there weren't uh, significant interests at stake uh, in the political outcomes of, of Europe and Asia. That sensibility could potentially return in our own time, but in our own time, uh, we face what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Uh, and so, you know, it's not just enough to win win the debate. Uh, that political battle has to be has to be won as well. I also think there's an insight we can learn both from the, the non-interventionists uh, from World War II and the interventionists in World War II. The non-interventionists harped on um, a significant point. They made the argument that the United States was, in fact, secure behind its oceans. Uh, if it chose to be, if it chose to simply defend the Western Hemisphere, but not go further, the oceans provided uh, incredible defense uh, against an outside invasion. Uh, and that point was essentially conceded by their opponents, who simply adopted different goalposts. They said, no, it would be bad enough for the United States to be uh, isolated with dominance in the Western Hemisphere, but not any further. So I think it's really important in our own time to note, and the U.S. Uh, nuclear deterrent strengthens the point of non-interventionists from, from World War II, that if the United States wants to be, it can be highly secure in the most concrete sense of security, which is security against uh, an outside attack. With respect to the um, interventionists, I, I actually think there's, uh, there's a lot to take from the people who forged U.S. global supremacy. I mean, I can't help, as a historian, I need to, to have sympathy for uh, everyone uh, that, I, that I write about to the extent that I, that I can, and I found myself having sympathy with uh, all sorts of people in this story. Uh, and that includes the, the people uh, that I focus on and whose decisions uh, I'm critical of. Uh, I thought that, you know, the, the post-war planners um, were, in a sense, uh, doing a good job as elites to look ahead in the world and think about how changing world events should change their perspective on America's role in the world. I think we'd be better off today in the midst of a pandemic in the after three decades of endless war, we'd be better off today if foreign policy experts uh, were actually willing to engage in a creative project. Uh, I think it would point to different conclusions to meet the challenges of the 21st century than planners uh, concluded in the middle of the 20th century. But uh, I think that's something to admire. And I also think that they understood, some of them at least, some of them were really triumphal. Some of them were explicitly racist. Um, but some of them had a kind of tragic view. They understood that there was good reasons why 
uh, prior generations, including some of them personally, didn't think the United States should be the militarily dominant power in the world because they they could see this will you know this this is an open ended project that will lead to untold costs uh, and something like endless war. And in 1941, a number of these post war planners uh, are uh, plotting uh, schemes to have the United States provide routine bombing of countries on the model of the British Empire, like the way the British police nominally independent Iraq in the interwar period. Uh, so they understood there were major costs involved. And I think today, many U.S. policymakers have lost sight of that fact. Uh, I think some of the post-war planners who were planning primacy in 1940 and 41 would have my views today. They would see that the world has changed and the extreme uh, you know, costs in every sense, including moral costs, uh, we're now bearing for a benefit that is extremely unclear. On that note, uh, <laughs> I think I've kept you here long enough. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stephen Wertheim, for coming on the program to talk about the book. Uh, it is Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. It's out tomorrow. Uh, there's an audio book, I think, right? Uh, there's an ebook. Uh, if you don't, if you prefer your uh, mediums to be uh, electronic rather than physical. Uh, also, uh, I will I'll link to this in the show description, but you you just wrote a piece, uh, kind of overview of, of the thesis of the book for the New York Times, America has no reason to be so powerful. Um, so buy the book, read the column. And uh, again, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Okay, that does it for us. I would like to thank once again Stephen Wertheim of the Quincy Institute and Columbia University for coming on the program. His book, again, is Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. It will be available tomorrow in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook forms. Uh, so check that out. I will post a link to the book in the show description as well as to Stephen's recent column in the New York Times that gives you sort of a flavor of what's in the book. So you can check both of those out. And again, thanks to him for being on the program. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.